You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Judith. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Patty and Ella. Good morning. Yeah, and if this sounds like a new team here on Monday Brecky, it is. Uh, but don't despair. Alice will be back with us in a couple of weeks. Her parents are visiting from the UK, so she's having a bit of time and uh, getting out and about. So this is wonderful for her. So, yeah, big shout out to Alice. Yeah, so how, it is the 11th of November. That's the first thing, and um, here we, we and we really want to acknowledge the um, the show that went before us, which is Beyond Zero Emissions, which is such a fantastic show. And always, I learn something new. It's great coming into the station and just hearing, you know, hearing them talking and yeah, interviewing. It's terrific. And um, I don't know. I did you notice the weather much this morning? Uh, uh, the sun was out, but it was still pretty cold. You reckon? Um, uh, I think it's supposed to get up to 27 degrees today. But oh, my God. Getting cold again tomorrow, back down to 17. So we just get this little reprieve right now. A little bit of summer, yeah. a taste of summer. Oh, yeah, when you hang your clothes, I do my washing. <laughs> so remind us what we're missing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's good. And uh, how were your weekends? Um, Patty, oh. Patty, yeah, I mean, you're both new. Can you just say a little bit about yourself, kind of what you're interested in? Well, um, this weekend I went to see Helen Garner at Broadside, oh, um, and she's one of my favorite authors ever. So, yeah, that was so great. And the line stretched all the way around the block. And it was so amazing to see. What a rock star. <laughs> and I, I went also, and I think, Ellie, you did too. Yeah, I got in there yesterday afternoon, and again, a line round the block. I think it was sold out, so they did well this weekend. Nice yeah. to see. What, <laughs> time, what did you see? What session? Uh, so I was at a session discussing feminism and capitalism. Um, so a lot to unpack, as you can imagine, uh, yeah. for very accomplished ladies. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, also I went to one that was decolonizing feminism, and it was amazing. So I think we were all there at different times, by the sound of it. Yeah, it was an action-packed weekend. Wasn't it just? And, and I was so excited to see, as you said, I think everybody, the line around the block. For feminist conference. How mm. fantastic <laughs> is that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but there was someone preaching uh, beside us. Oh, I, really? <laughs> I, I, think, I think he was very excited. I think he thought, oh, look, look at all these people. But he had the wrong group. I could just tell by the looks on everyone's faces. A there hard was, sell, I think. <laughs> a very hard sell. In fact, I think most people were just laughing. That uh, was amazing. Um, did you uh, do anything else in, over the weekend? Worked. 
Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. And, yeah, I completed my 3CR training just ahead of my first Monday breakfast show. Congratulations. <laughs> with a little clap on that one. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and, Patty, you're halfway through or something. Halfway through. Yay. Oh, well, wonderful. Welcome to both of you. It's so great to have you here this morning. Thanks, Exciting to be here. <laughs> Jump, jumping right in. I mean, fantastic. I'm shaking a little bit. <laughs> well, that just comes and goes, that one, you know. It never quite goes away. <laughs> oh yeah, I was trying God. to get the coffee amount just right this morning to be perky enough but not too shaky. <laughs> yes, I was drinking mine as I was coming here, you know, en route kind of. But we really, we've got a big show this morning, lots, lots coming up. Yeah, lots on. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I'll just go right right to the, the end of the show. So after eight, we have Shank Kao, who's coming on. He's from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. And Queensland has proposed that it's going to ban single-use plastics. Um, that's coming up. They haven't actually given an exact date, but it's pretty exciting. And the, the Marine Conservation Society has said we welcome this move. So it's a matter of um, what it's going to look like. And I think we're seeing lots of that kind of you know, different different versions mm. of banning of plastic. Sometimes it's just plastic bags, single-use plastic bags. And, but in, in this case, it's, you know, forks and plast- lots of plastics, lots of straws, all those things. Yeah, straws are a big offender. <laughs> just, yeah. So he's going to tell us a bit about what that's looking like. And then at 8, we have Wendy Steele for RMIT. And she's written what I thought was just an amazing paper, <laughs> which the title was, Churches have legal rights in Australia. Why not sacred trees? Well, why not? Why not? Yeah. Why Indeed. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and she's also going to talk a bit about ecological economics, which is a concept I hadn't heard before. I mean, maybe I don't get out much. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but it was new to me, and I found, think it sounds really exciting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to just speaking with Wendy. And then I, I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure our listeners will know, that the federal government is trying to roll back Medivac legislation, which provo- you know brings people from Manus Island and Nauru, refugees here, for medical help, medical treatment. So we'll be speaking to Chris Breen. There was a, a demonstration on Saturday afternoon, and people to you know to protest against rolling it back. So we'll hear why uh, it shouldn't be rolled back, and. Uh, and also about some events that are coming up to, so people can come out and make their voices heard on that one. You got along to that protest on the weekend, didn't I you? Did. Mm-hmm. I did, but only to part of it because I was going to, and I, it was just a packed weekend. So I just got the first part, but I did get to um, uh, tape a little bit of, record a little bit of the first couple of speeches. So we'll, we'll just hear a touch of that as well. Um, yeah, but uh, I've also got a photo, which I think we might put up on our, our website. Uh, the faces of the people there were, you know, you could see how much they cared, how deeply concerned they were. It was, yeah, the crowd. Such a terrible thing. It is, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we'll hear from Chris. That's about 7.45. We'll be hearing from Chris. Um on, on another environmental, so we've got a lot of environment, environmental stories this morning. Another one, Matt Rushall, he's the executive director of Victoria National Parks Association. And the Andrews government has announced that logging of old growth native forest in Victoria will cease immediately. Yes, I see that. Nice to see some good news out there. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, so, so he'll tell us more about that. And then I don't know if you noticed um, that the um, medically supervised injecting 
room has been in the news lately. I did see, I did see that. Yeah, so we're going to get to the bottom of that story, talking with um, Peter Wern about those reports, which, in fact, aren't accurate. Seems like a bit of a beat-up. Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, at this stage, I don't think we know the whole story, but he'll he'll just tell us a bit. He's been working in the drug and alcohol field for, he told me, he said this, over 40 years. Wow. Over four <laughs> decades. So, yeah, he's going to speak, uh, I guess, as a practitioner, a person uh, working from that perspective. But uh, now we're going to hear some music, I think, just to bring people in the morning. And uh, Miss Seely's Blues, and it's about sisters. So I'd like to dedicate this one to Alice, if she's listening. Cause honey is my 
And that was Mysterious Blues from Molly Johnson. And um, I think we're coming up to about 12 minutes past seven. If you're getting up and getting ready to get out there and <laughs> get kids to school or get yourself to work or even if you're still sleeping in, you know, <laughs> whatever <laughs> is going on in your life, we love having you here. So thanks so much for tuning in to 3CR Monday Brekkie. So the need for drug law reform has been in the news in lots of ways, in lots of places. I I don't know if you've noticed New South Wales. For example, the coroner has recommended pill testing be conducted in New South Wales, along with decriminalization of personal drug use. I mean, how many times have we spoken to Greg Denham on this show about the need for that? And, of course, Portugal led the way with that 20 years ago. And all right. <laughs> Slowly catching <Yeah>. up. <laughs> if it's just been recommended by the coroner, this is of course talking about young people's deaths in, in mm. music festivals, and uh, so that's been in the news. But closer to home in Victoria, we've seen reports that turned out to be incorrect that two employees of the medically supervised injecting room in North Richmond were arrested on drug, tra- drug charges. People were arrested. We don't know, you know. I mean, people are innocent until proven guilty. Uh, we don't know uh, the results of that, but we do know they weren't employees of the medically supervised injecting room. So Peter Wern has met, wears many hats, but he's uh, today speaking to us really from his experience as a worker of over 40 years, as I said earlier, an advocate of drug law reform and evidence-based practice. So he came into the studio last week just to talk to me about why the medically supervised injecting room was established and also his response to the most recent media reports. But just before we go to Peter, I just want to say that that I feel a kind of connection with this particular um, uh, service that's been provided because when I first arrived in Melbourne a few years ago, I attended a vigil over in North Richmond. It was a vigil for people who died uh, as a result of an overdose, and many people had died in that area, and Peter will talk a bit about that. But... um, in in the, the the small group and people brought flowers and there was someone from C3 Sierra there of course Kelly was there <laughs> recording, but uh, quite a few parliamentarians were there and lots of people talked about people close to them that they'd lost, so um, I'm very interested in this project in particular and and what it can what it's it is offering at the moment, and I guess the next thing I need to say before we we play the interview is that. Uh, if you are listening, there is reference at the beginning, very beginning of the interview, to the death of a young Aboriginal woman. Uh, her name isn't stated, but just to know that, because people listening may well know who she is, so that's a warning uh, for people to know that. So I began by asking Peter why the medically supervised injecting room was needed. 2016, there was a coronial report where they investigated the death of a young Indigenous mother in Hungry Jack's toilets on uh, Hoddle Street. The young teenage staff that were running Hungry Jacks that day tried to revive her, but she died, unfortunately. The coroner had an inquest into that death, and there were many, many submissions made to the coroner arguing for a better policy and a better way of dealing with the management of heroin overdoses in Victoria, including calls for a medically supervised injecting facility. That uh, centre has been opened and it's been going for over a year now and a report came out in October this year. 
that gives us some information, yeah, some that, indication that, how it's that, going. That's correct. Yeah. So what did that report find? There'd been a massive uh, usage of the facility to the point that in the interim or the uh, temporary facility before the, the fit-for-purpose building was uh, constructed, it was so uh, busy that people had to wait to use the facility, which was really problematic because people, when they're keen to inject and are dependent on a drug like heroin, they don't like waiting to have yes, to do that. But the fact that they did... Oh, that's right. No, they, no. That says something about their so, commitment to safety for themselves, yeah. at least. Yeah. And I think you'd have to say that the raw numbers tell you that there's been literally hundreds of reversals. Well, the figure that I read was 1,232. Yeah. yeah, that's the figure. Yeah. Yeah. But all those... Um, Reversals would not necessarily have resulted in death, but uh, certainly a, a significant number would have. And when you look at that number of overdoses that have been reversed, it's not just the people whose lives have been saved. It's the people who love them. Yes. It's their families, mums, their dads, their grandparents, their children. So while one life has been saved, the lives of many, many others have been touched. And Absolutely. So if, yeah. we look at, if we look at the data prior to the uh, injecting room opening, the year before, 34 people died in that North Richmond area from illicit heroin overdose. 34. If you look at the number of novel, novel injections that have occurred in that facility and medically supervised, that's how many times a member of the public hasn't had to witness someone injecting in public. Yes. And so the impact on the amenity is massive. In conjecture, there would be people in North Richmond area that say, oh, it's out of control and it's never been worse on the street. That's all yet to be established. What we do know is that the facility has not had one fatality occur in that facility, which is in line with all similar facilities all over the world. No one has ever died of a drug overdose. And even the most rudimentary supervised injecting facility run by absolute amateurs and well-meaning people. This is a very special program because it not only links you with safe, safer usage and uh, supervision, it has a suite of services that people who are using illicit drugs can actually access. It's not just about injecting, it's about providing support in other areas of people's lives. And some people are taking that opportunity to get into treatment, not all, get help with family matters or get help with a podiatrist or a dentist or, or general health. So the prevention aspect of health promotion is really significant in that, in that place. So there are a lot of other benefits for the injecting room that aren't purely just around overdose and taking those injections off the street. And that was Peter Wern, who's been working in that field for so many years and um, an advocate of harm reduction, and, of course, he would well know um, what happens um, in that scene, in that setting, and particularly if there's an overdose. So, and, and how people move. You know, people don't use a particular drug for all their lives. People reach a point where they decide to make a change, and the great thing is they've got the resource to do it there. So that's really good. And I guess the other thing when you're thinking about um, injecting and uh, overdose, it's often people doing it for the first time that are most at risk or the second time because they don't quite know what they're doing. They don't know what they're getting. It's illegal, so you don't know how much. So all those kinds of things. So, yes. But I was interested also in the media reports that we'd been hearing. I asked Peter 
why he thought the media had incorrectly reported that the two workers arrested were employees of the medically supervised injecting room. I think the media, who on the whole were highly supportive of the injecting room, which was surprising from my point of view, including the really uh, sensational and popularist media, uh, the Herald Sun and uh, 3AW, actually called for the trial. They got behind it. Yeah, they absolutely called for the trial and supported the calls for the trial. Uh, so they changed their position, which historically had been opposed to the room. So I think um, this is just one of those issues that is always going to court controversy. And partly the role of the review is to establish the impact of the injecting room. Not so only, this is the evaluation. Yeah, the evaluation. Yeah, yeah. That's their role. And, and like any um, sensible human being, I'd be saying, let's, let's cool our jets and mm-hmm. wait to see what the data tells us and what, the, what the, uh, the review tells us. Where were you when you heard the news about the arrests? My phone rang off the hook. I had about 20 phone calls in about 15 minutes because it had just been announced on the news and I had people texting me telling me to turn on the news. So that would have been somewhere between 5 and 7 p.m. That's when I was yeah. first notified. And what was your, your immediate response when you heard this news? How did you feel? Uh, emotionally, I felt, oh, no, I hope that hasn't happened. And, of course, the first reports I heard was that they were people who worked in the injecting room. Yes, that's what the report was. And so I was, when I put that together, I thought, hold on, how's that actually possible? And I started having questions about when's this taken place. Then when I found out who one of the folk was. Who'd been arrested. Yeah, who'd been arrested. I thought, there's something here that doesn't add up to me. And so this was fairly quickly. Yeah. Look, I've been doing this sort of work for nearly four and a half decades. So nothing's new to me. I've seen plenty of names in the media and plenty of people accused of all sorts of things. I have no knowledge of whether the charges are true or not. I have no other information to clarify that. What I'd urge people to do is to wait to see what the evidence tells us and what the process tells us. When you found out who the people arrested were, you realised it wasn't the medically supervised injecting centre. Were there any other pointers that something was amiss, something odd going on around this story? The way the media was so quickly in attendance at the site when the arrests were made, because the, the staff members were arrested in North Richmond. They weren't arrested in their homes. They don't live in North Richmond. That made me think there's something going on here. I don't know the whole story, and I still don't know the whole story. There's some questions that need to be answered in relationship to the processes. But let's make it really clear, if the people involved in being charged with these offences, if they did the offences, then they should be charged under our laws. There is no argument about that. But I can't comment on the veracity of those charges, whether they're innocent or guilty. That's before the court. But what I would say is that in no way should we see what has occurred as being a slight or to do with the injecting room. And I understand that Daniel Andrews hasn't backed off his support for the medically supervised injecting room. He's saying it should go its full two years and wait for the evaluation. But am I right about that? Yeah, and I think he said that in Parliament last Tuesday week. 
the Premier is standing behind it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think um, he has taken what is an absolute reasonable position, that they said that it was a trial, they said that it would be for two years, they'd instigate an evaluation and review process of the effectiveness and impact of the uh, injecting room. The criteria is on a website you can look up to see what are the areas that the review panel is investigating, and you wait for the report because they have all the data. So many submissions have been made to them on the impact of the room, both for, against and neutral, that they will have more information than anyone to make that evaluation. That's the appropriate way that this, this should be reviewed and decided upon. And that was Peter Wern, and indeed, uh, so good advice there. Wait and see. And I have a feeling that the whole story of what happened uh, during the media report uh, is still unfolding, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about it over the next weeks. So big thanks to Peter Wern for coming in and, and doing that interview. On Thursday 28th of November at 12pm, environment groups and communities from across Victoria will peacefully rally together at Parliament to call for urgent action for our natural world. After five years of the Andrews government, nature deserves more, especially in the face of climate change. Victorians need new and better funded national parks, stronger nature laws and better protection for our threatened forests, rivers, beaches, oceans and native plants and animals. We need real action for our natural places and wildlife now. Join in the Nature for Life rally. Bring a sign to highlight the natural places you love that deserve better protection. See you on Parliament Steps, Thursday 28th of November at 12pm. Look for Nature for Life rally on Facebook and visit Victoria National Parks Association website vnpa.org.au forward slash rally. VNPA is a 3CR supporter. And that's a rally to be at, that's for sure. Well, the announcement by the Andrews government last Thursday, and I, I, were you all cheering? Did you see that announcement? Yeah, good news. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the Andrews government that um, the logging of old growth native forest in Victoria would cease immediately and that threatened species habitat would be exempt from logging and was welcomed as good news for the environment. And Matt Rockall, who's the executive director of the Victorian National Parks Association, which is a community-based conservation organisation, joins us on the line now to tell us more. So welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Matt. Good morning. Yeah, great. Thanks for getting up early and coming on the show. That's all right. Thank yeah. Um, so I guess my first question really is that the announcement by the Andrews government that logging of old growth native forest in Victoria would cease immediately, it's been, it's been welcomed by environmental groups, certainly welcomed by the people here sitting in the studio. But um, I'm wondering, you know, how much land are we talking about in this announcement? So there's two, pack, two packages, if you like, in, in the announcement. One's about the old growth, which is, uh, basically uh, immediately stopping uh, logging of old growth. Uh, it's about 90,000 hectares. And then there's another package, uh, which is they're calling immediate protection areas, um, which is aimed at protecting greater glider habitat, a uh, range of other forest-dependent threatened species um, in some sort of reserves. So there's sort of maps with lines on it, uh, which uh, is about another 96,000 hectares. 
So um, it's a significant amount. It will, would we be able to get the maps? Some people really like maps, I know. Yeah, <laughs> the, the maps are, are available on the website. Oh, um, good. They're not in, not in a high um, resolution, but you can see the general area. So there's some important immediate protection areas in the central highlands that link uh, the Yarra Ranges National Park and Borbore. Um, there's quite a large, about more than half of it's in East Gippsland, um, which builds on things like the Snowy River uh, National Park and also puts some other links in. There's probably some tweaks that need to be done to that uh, before it's sort of uh, put in place permanently. Um, but that's very welcome. Um, and and the, you... Oh, Sorry, go on. The old growth package... Um, is a bit different, so it's based on a model of old growth, largely in East Gippsland, because there's not a lot of old growth left in the Central Highlands because it's been so heavily logged and burnt. Oh. Um, so what it is is uh, what they call a forestry prescription or a forestry rule, so where they think there's old growth, there'll be rules put in place that that's then assessed on the ground and uh, Vic Forest won't be allowed to log in those areas if it's determined... Uh, that it is old growth in reality. So there's always a bit of room to move in those sorts of announcements, but the principle is down, and there's always a bit of devil in the detail, of course. Sure, of course. And what, uh, wild, you mentioned wildlife earlier. I mean, what, what wildlife, what creatures are we actually talking about that will be uh, affected and protected by this? So the, one of the key ones was the greater glider. Um, so that's one of our great, uh, bigger, or the biggest, gliding uh, possum, a very interesting animal. Um, part of the package also included the release of the Greater Glider Action Statement, which is the sort of uh, tool that's produced under uh, threatened species legislation. Um, there's been a lot of concern about the Greater Glider. Um, its population has uh, declined over the last uh, 20 years. Some, some scientists pointing to up to 50% in the last 20 years. Oh, that's so, um, it's so sad to hear these things. It's, um, yeah, But good, good that some protection is coming along. Yes, so that, that's the key thing that drives the, what they're calling the immediate protection areas. Uh, or, and, but there's also crossover with probably 35 other forest dependent threatened species and in the Central Highlands, there's probably some crossover with the leadbeater's possum, but their habitats are similar, but not always exactly the same as the gliders 10 years older right. forest. And the leadbeaters can use it, uh, like to feed in younger, uh, sometimes very gross forests. Well, um, it's good to hear that you know there will be more protection than there has been. Are there any besides the uh, animals? Are, are there any other uh, benefits from this? Well, I think there, there is a commitment to um, end native forest logging um, by 2030. Um, so that's a long way off. Um, so that, that, you know, those things are hard to uh, um, enforce, I suppose, over a number of elections before 2030. So yes, that's uh, we true. need to ensure the action's done now rather than later, I suppose. Yeah, as soon as possible by the sound of it. Yeah, so they're, they, they're suggesting that, and it's probably it's good that there's a package for transition for uh, workers and uh, support for workers um, uh, and various mills uh, that are uh, currently using the area. But the, the big problem with the forest industry is that there's essentially no wood left uh, for the long term, both due to overlogging in the past and 
uh, bushfires. Um, so so can, can, may I ask, so was the industry really fading out anyway? Y- yes and no. So there's always... Um, uh, so there is this pressure on the wood supply, and so particularly the sort of timber side of it has been declining for years, and a lot of the, the resource goes to pulp. Um, it's important... There's lots of figures thrown around, you know, it's only a small proportion of the forest and so on, but the reality is that uh, the logging sector particularly focuses on the ash forests uh, yes. in the central highlands, mm-hmm. um, so something like 70% of the, the total income for big forests, which is the state government-owned forest agency, comes from those ash forests, and they've been particularly impacted by Black Saturday bushfires and so on, so they're just, the... Writing's been on the wall, if you like, in terms of supply for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there has been a steady decline in the saw log side, but uh, pulp continues um, because they're essentially feeding uh, Australian paper um, and that continues due to sort of contractual arrangement. So right. the step down and the, I suppose the phase out is a great bookend, um, uh, but we'll just need to make sure we can get it Yes. That it gets delivered, I suppose, over the next years. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the things that, that you do say is that, um, while it's a good move, it does feel a bit short-term protection. Why is that? So the immediate protected areas, which are the proposed um, uh, sort of reserves, if you like, there's not really much clarity about what exactly they are. So are they parts of National Park or are they um, conservation reserves or that sort of thing? So at the moment they're just lines on a map or political lines on the map saying there'll be no further logging in these places immediately, which is good, um, but we still need to go through a process to give them sort of legislative or regulatory protection. Um, that's what that's sort of talking about. So ideally you'd want you know, some of it attached to the National Parks Estate and protected permanently um, because things can change. And um, Yeah, you don't want it to know, be at the, the whim of political parties and, and uh, the change in, in governments, I guess, at the state yeah, level. That's, that's yeah, yeah, so that's what that's pointing to. So ideally, some of it would be added to the National Parks Estate, but there's a range of reserve tenures that people can use uh, or governments can use um, to, to make sure they're protected uh, for the future. Yes. Well, Matt Rockle, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about, um, you know, about this announcement? Well, I, th- I think the key thing is that it is a, it is a really, uh, it is a breakthrough in a way. Um, it's a great step forward. There's been a great um, uh, move by the Minister and the Andrews Government to sort of put these pieces in place. Um, but as always, the devil's always in the detail and we need to be vigilant to ensure that you know, they're implemented properly. Um, yes. And, and, the yeah, and because we've got such an activist uh, audience here at 3CR, is there anything that you would like people to do to, um, you know, is there anything we can do to, to keep the government on its toes, if you like, in relation to this announcement? I mean, I think it's great that we can welcome it. That's terrific. As you say, the devil's in the detail. There's still more to know. What could listeners do to, to keep the momentum going? Well, the big danger, I think, at the moment, is two things, I think. One is that the, um, there'll be the inevitable pushback from the industry. Um, so people need to take the opportunity to sort of, you know, talk on radio 
um, you know, write letters to the paper to highlight the ecological side uh, because you don't want things to suddenly get too hot and there's changes. So that's a short-term thing. Um, and I think if people would come to where there's a rally being organised for nature, um, that can, that's about forest but also broader issues... Uh, at the end of the month, so people uh, come along to that. It'd be great to see. Uh, we need to highlight that there's more for nature, more that nature needs. So 28th of uh, November at Parliament, um, right? Yes. Midday. So that would be um, helpful. People come along there to show that there is uh, community support and needs for nature to be better protected into the future. Yes, and I think that's already on 3CR's uh, calendar for sure, Matt. So thank you for coming on this morning and uh, and telling us, giving us more detail about what's okay, happening Chris. there and also, you know, what you'd look for in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. And that was uh, Matt Ruckel from, uh, or he's the executive director of the Victorian National Parks Association. And um, yeah, yeah. There's so much bad news about the environment at the moment that, and I think every step you know, towards uh, change has got to be welcomed. Yes, uh, I, I like that uh, saying. You know, it's, it's not everyone acting perfectly; it's everyone acting imperfectly, but towards towards, towards the same goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it seems like a step in the right direction um, as long as we keep heading. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, and we've got some music now. This is uh, Yasuaki Shimizu with Kakashi.
beautiful music. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, I really liked it. So um, I guess there's been so much going on at the moment, you know, to pay attention to. So most of our listeners will know the federal government is trying to repeal the Medivac legislation, which has only just really uh, come in over the last um, six or eight months. And it was such a struggle to get through in the first place, uh, which allows, and the legislation has allowed refugees on Nauru and Manus Island to be brought to Australia for treatment. So on Saturday, there was a rally uh, at the State Library uh, arguing for the continuation of Medivac. Before the rally, last Thursday, I spoke with Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective, Victoria, about what he's hoping to achieve, what they are hoping to achieve uh, from the rally and uh, and the the awareness they're raising. And I, I felt, again, a warning is needed to listeners because some of the information about the way the refugees are treated in their medical situations actually can be quite upsetting. And I found it, even you know, editing the interview, I, I found myself, um, yeah, feeling both indignant, enraged, um, very, very sad. So there may be some things that will be upsetting in what you're going to hear. I just want people to know that. Um, but I began by asking Chris Breen about the background to the Medivac bill. The background really goes to Australia setting up the offshore prison camps for refugees where men on Manus and you know, men and families and children on Nauru have been held for over six years. That policy was really intended to break people and it has. And there has been crying desperate medical need um, amongst those refugee populations. There have been 12 deaths offshore. Uh, there was Hamid Karzai who died of a, a cut foot essentially which, which led to an infection and wasn't treated. Bureaucrats overruled doctors and that uh, led to his death you know, as the, the coroner found. And again and again there have been doctors who have spoken out like Dr Nick Martin who talked about their decisions being overruled um, without being put in writing, without given reasons. So that is the the story behind the the Medivac legislation. People were getting very sick and not being treated. And they had to spend years in the courts uh, trying to get get the treatment they needed. Karen Phelps uh, was the person who put the the bill with um, Adam Bant. The legislation was the first time that a government has been defeated in the House of Reps for, I think it was since the 1920s. They were pretty uh, angry about that or, you know, humiliated about that. So the coalition government is trying to repeal the Medivac laws. There is now about 140 people who've come to Australia under the bill. And it is evidence of the cruelty of the offshore camps that Australia has broken people. It's only been uh, six months or so that the legislation has been in place and 140 people have been transferred. Peter Dutton has made a big issue saying that a lot of them aren't in hospital. Are they really sick, he's trying to imply. But nonetheless, he has approved the transfer of all of them. Sometimes people have come here and are not getting the treatment that they've been brought here for as well. Why is that? At first it might have seemed like you know, bureaucratic delays. It, it seems to be more and more the case that it's um, almost intentional. So particularly people with dental problems, uh, they're not getting out of detention. Uh, they're getting a dental caravan, go to see them. There's a guy who's lost all of his teeth who's been eating liquid food for seven months, still not getting treatment. There's another guy who was sent to Manus as a teenager in a very similar position who has a few teeth left, but the treatment he needs is a bridge. Australia Border Force saying they're not going to pay for that. It's too expensive. He needs a cheaper option of a plate, which would require him to remove the rest of his teeth, which he doesn't want to do. 
Other people, after waiting years for treatment, have been now been put on public hospital waiting lists. They've been brought here under Medivac, yeah. and then they're put on wait lists instead of dealt with straight away. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that is the case. Some people waiting months to get appointments, to get the scans and things that they need, or the treatment that they need. You know, there's also people for mental health, which doesn't always require hospitalisation immediately. But there's all sorts of serious problems. Another guy with TB, uh, you know, people with serious kidney uh, disease. Are there other, any other patterns, if you like? It's a mix of physical and mental health. Like the, the people brought in the last week was about half-half. And certainly the offshore prison camps have been, as um, Patrick McGorry said, factories for producing mental illness. And you'd have over half of the people who have seriously diagnosable mental health conditions. Apart from anything else, they are now being brought here and all locked up over here. It's very hard to get better when you're still being placed in that same detention limbo environment which has broken you in the first place. It sounds like the situation is dire. The legislation isn't working perfectly and they're not getting the treatment they need. But nonetheless, we just cannot go back to the medical black hole that there was before Medivac where people were denied treatment, people in pain, in constant pain, you know, people with kidney stones not treated. Bureaucrats would overrule doctors' decisions again and again. You know, appropriate medical treatment is a human right. So the government is now trying to overturn that legislation. What are the chances of them achieving that? It's going to be very, very close. The numbers essentially come down to Jackie Lambie's vote. There have been different indications about which way that's going to go. What we're saying to people is it, it's not too late to try and make a difference. It will be a, a close-run thing. Do we know when this legislation is going to be voted on? We had expected that it would come to Parliament in the coming week, sort of between the 11th and 14th of November. It's not currently on the legislation schedule as I understand it, so it might not be until the end of November now, which does give us a bit more time for people to do the, the, the kinds of pressure we're doing. The, the public rallies, people can always call their representatives, call Jackie Lambie. I mean, certainly the doctors themselves in Australia, the 11 colleges, have all come out calling for the, for the legislation to stay, which is an important step. The nurses' union certainly wants the legislation to stay. Manus and Nauru, those places should be closed down. They should be brought here, but certainly we don't want to take a step backwards where they don't get medical treatment and they're, they're stuck on the prison islands. Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective, Victoria. And I went along to the rally on Saturday and just a little bit from a couple of the speeches... We're dealing with whether or not people will live or die. And we know that with absolute certainty because 12 people have died offshore. And they are people like the 27-year-old Sudanese refugee, Faisal Ishaq Ahmed. He collapsed on Manus. He should have received attention straight away. It took 12 hours for the immigration authorities, the Australian authorities, to agree for him to be flown from Manus to Port Moresby. By the time he made it from Port Moresby to Brisbane, he was on death's door. He died in Brisbane. Twelve-hour wait to be put on a flight to at least the first step towards safety. That is deliberate time-wasting, and we can never be certain, but it may well be that he would have lived if he'd had immediate access to medical care. Let's not forget about the 24-year-old Iranian asylum seeker, Hamid Kazai. He got an infection. It was a fairly straightforward infection. 
there were no antibiotics to treat a tropical infection on a tropical island. There were no facilities. There were no antibiotics. He died in Australia a completely preventable death, a death that could have been dealt with with the application of a straightforward antibiotic. But the Australian government has sent these people to these islands, has dumped them there, has given them the minimal treatment of available, and when conditions, physical or mental, flare up, then they slam the door or people die. And that's why defending Medivac is of fundamental importance. It is a matter of life and death. We need to remember that people on, currently on Manus and Nauru have been there nearly six and a half years. Most of them were not sick before they were in detention. Since that time, those people have been exposed to dengue fever, typhoid, tuberculosis, malaria, in some cases multiple times. The anti-malarials were the same sort that were banned by the Australian Defence Force because they were linked to paranoia, depression, hallucinations, sleep disturbance and suicide ideation. Despite this, these anti-malarials were continued to be given to the men incarcerated in detention on Manus. The overcrowded living conditions on both Manus and Nauru, bunk bed next to bunk bed next to bunk bed, ensured that anything infectious had ample opportunity to spread quickly. Everything was designed to make people sick. And we came to a view last year across the political spectrum that even if you defend mandatory detention, which I don't, but I know others do, even if you agree with that, there is no basis for denying someone the help they need when they get sick. Whatever the cause, if someone is sick, get them the help. Yeah. Governments and people like Peter Dutton should not be able to stand in the way between a sick person and their doctor. And that is a fundamental, fundamental principle that we were all able to agree upon. And that was Adam Bant from the Greens. I'm sure some of you would have recognised his voice ending that story. And before that, you heard the, the chair people of the rally, Margaret Sinclair and David Glantz. And here's Chris Breen again from the Refugee Action Collective with some information about upcoming events and also a new piece of information which I think a lot of people aren't aware of. On uh, Tuesday the 12th of November at uh, 6.30 at the Nurses' Union 535 Elizabeth Street, we are showing Against Our Oaths, which is a new film that's come out. Uh, lots of interviews with doctors, the story behind the Medivac legislation. We're showing that as a fundraiser. You can just turn up. Um, tickets are $20, $10 concession. On uh, Monday the 18th of November, also at the Nurses' Union at 6.30, we've got a forum about the um, Bamana prison in Port Moresby. So since Manus was closed, Australia has built and funded a new $20 million immigration detention centre attached to the high-security Bamana prison. And that's a Papua New Guinea prison? Papua New Guinea prison, yes, Papua New Guinea prison, so run by Papua New Guinea. And 53 asylum seekers have been stuck in this prison, repeating the, the crime of Manus and they've been held incommunicado. So no lawyers, no Red Cross, no UNHCR, no visits. And we know that there are 10 people in there who have been approved for Medivac processes but are currently unable to, to come. We want people to find out more about that. And we are certainly keeping up the fight to close Manus and Nauru and end the crime that has been done to so many people. 
And it is upsetting to hear about what's happened to people. That was Chris Breen, again, from the Refugee Action Collective. And you can go to their website and find out more about what they're doing. And if you found that story distressing or if it raised some personal issues for you, the lifeline number is 131114. And again, to find out more, take action, get in touch with your parliamentary representative and check out um, the Refugee Action Collective. Now we're going to hear from Uncle Archie Roach. Oh, when darkness overcomes us And we cannot find our way Although we keep on searching For the light of day And we hear the children crying And we don't know what to do Gotta hold on to each other And love will see us through Let love
the amazing voice of uh, Uncle Archie Roach with Let Love Rule and uh, such a, an amazing icon, really, in Australia and such a beautiful song that speaks to so many of the things we've been hearing about this morning and compassion. Now, I, we also have had a, a couple of stories, one still to come, or two still to come, looking at environment, environmental issues. And uh, Wendy Steele, who's an associate professor in sustainability and urban planning at RMIT University in Melbourne, has written a paper along with her colleague, Michelle Maloney, entitled, Churches Have Legal Rights in Australia? Well, why not sacred trees? What a great question. So I thought it would be fantastic if she could join us this morning. Welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Wendy. Oh, good morning. Thanks for, for your paper and thanks for coming on this morning. But my first question is actually just even before we talk about uh, some of the issues you raised in the paper, I noticed that this article is part of a series on, re, and this is in quotes, on rebalancing the human hyphen nature interactions, which is central to the study and practice, practice of ecological economics. Can you tell me what ecological economics is? Uh, look, yes, it's, uh, there's, the, there's a, a conference on ecological economics that is coming up next week, and it's, uh, it's a way of rethinking um, the very system that we use. Uh, so how do we value things? Um, you know, we can value things in, a, in a, a particularly mercenary and monetary sense, or we could value things from a quite different approach where um, we, we approach things with a, an infrastructure of care, if you like it. So it's a, a different way of valuing the world in which we live and the way in which we want to undertake that world. It, it sounds like a terrific conference, and uh, I'll, I'll, post some, I'll post some information about it on our website after, because I think a lot of people would be interested in learning more about that. But Excellent. Yeah, but coming back to the paper, what prompted you to write this paper? Uh, look, we were as part of this um, of this conference agenda. Uh, a few of us were approached to perhaps help uh, highlight um, different aspects um, of where ecological economics has a role, uh, has played an important part, and certainly rebalancing um, human nature relations in terms of environmental issues and indigenous issues is really, really important. So, um, in Victoria and in Australia, we have a we don't have a very good record of of, of how we engage with traditional owners it's been a, a, a very you know often cruel and mercenary relationship and nor do we have a very good relationship um, uh, with our natural environment uh, we have one of the worst deforestation uh, reputations in the world so there's, there's a there's really a lot uh, to engage with here and in Australia the two really can't be seen separately and so that's um, that's part of the challenge. We, we, we have traditional custodians who have cared for country for, um, you know, for millennia, and so we need to embrace that agenda uh, when we think about our rights of nature as well. So. Yes, and, and learn from each other, I, I would think. Learn from each other. Yeah. And, and so you did ask the question, what you refer particularly to the Jaburung sacred trees, which you know, there's been demonstration after demonstration around, um, and, and they don't have legal standing, but uh, funnily enough, churches, Coles and Westpac do. Yes. So why don't they have legal standing? 
Well, because it's, I mean, it's the system we live in. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I mean, it, it was a provocation in Australia because it's so, um, it, it really was a provocation because for, for many people, uh, and some of the comments actually to the article were saying, well, look, you know, we don't want to align ourselves with churches in any way. And it sort of took the debate um, in a different direction. But, but it was more highlighting that there are some things we value in our society. Um, there are some things that, that we give priority to um, and there are things that, that clearly are abundantly important, sacred um, and nurturing that don't get that priority in the society that we live. And so let's have a look at that and, um, and try and understand why. Um, yes. Um, of, of, go on, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that what, I mean, one approach is to say, well, look, one way to do that is to try and buy into the system. So, you know, do we give, you know, uh, you know the Jabalong traditional owners and you know, uh, sacred trees are seat at the table, so to speak, which currently they, they barely have. Um, or do we, in fact, actually rethink the, the entire system and, and think about how we can do things in a much more caring and, and generous uh, manner? Um, so both of these questions uh, will be raised at the Ecological Economics Conference. Yes, and uh, one of the things you do point out in the paper is that corporate rights have expanded and the process of incorporation has been simplified. Um, I'm wondering, what does incorporation offer to business? Well, it, it offers protection um, and standing. So it, it offers that seat at the table, so it allows them to be a player, a stakeholder in discussions, but it also protects them um, from... Uh, it protects individuals from being personally liable but it also means that they can they can take people to court, so they can they can sue people and have a have a say in the process. So, I mean, the argument for giving giving legal rights to say, for example, sacred trees is that it, it you know it formally legally acknowledges that they have uh, the right to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve, and that they they couldn't build a road without uh, having. Um, representation for those sacred trees as part of, you know, a very, a very, um, you know, serious consultation process, not the one that we've seen undertaken, um, and that in fact they could sue, um, you know, entities that that seek to damage or harm or hurt those sacred trees. Um, uh, is there that, some? That, yes. Sorry. Yes, no. I was just is, is there some precedent for this internationally, for example? Oh, there is a lot of precedent. Um, so there's um, there's precedent in um, constitutional law in Ecuador, which uh, for you know, was the first country to embrace uh, in their constitution uh, the rights of Pachamama, so the rights of, of Mother Earth, uh, that then uh, had to be integrated into all considerations, uh, supported by traditional owners. Um, New Zealand has also brought in uh, rights of rivers, uh, in particular examples. There are other cases all around the world of this. But I think it is important to stress that um, philosophically there are some, you know, there's, some, there's a lot of interesting questions here, which actually makes it tricky to talk about in a short amount of time. I appreciate uh, that. Yes, <laughs> yes, for but, sure. But, mm -hmm. but we have to, you know, often, you know, as we know with anything, like with, with, with all parts of our system, you know, that it, it, you, you might have um, legal, legal uh, identity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that fair, just and compassionate uh, action is taken. And I think that's what we have to remember, that our legal system, you know, is one framework, but it, it can be quite a black and white framework, quite a, a limiting framework when it comes to, you know, considerations of storylines or country or, um, you know, the values of nature. Um, it, 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 
it, it's one avenue but can be limited. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I do appreciate that. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I was excited about your paper because there, there was so much in it and, you know, so many ways we can go in discussing it, but it, it really put it on the agenda to start thinking about these things. And I thought that was really important. Um, are, are, some, are some trees currently protected in Australia or rivers? Is there anything moving in that direction that you can see? They, so we, we, do have, um, we do have protection of trees, but they, they, it's, it, it, it's sort of framed in a totally different way. So it's regulatory protection. Um, I guess uh, from my perspective, you could see that it's, a, it, you know, it's very anthropocentric, so it's utilitarian. We, we protect trees if we think they're, they're useful to us in certain ways. And um, so there is legislation that you know, has, uh, you know, through our Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act, we can protect you know, significant or endangered trees. But, but they, they don't speak for themselves and they rely on a system that is going to categorise you know, who, who's valuable and who's not. So in the case of um, uh, the sacred trees, the Jawarung sacred trees, um, they haven't been categorised in a way that, that certainly the Jawarung traditional owners would, would feel that they should be. Yes. And so they've been, you know, they've been uh, left out, if you like, in, in, in this, uh, you know, quest for for duplicating a freeway. <laughs> um, uh, their, their significance hasn't been um, counted in our system. So that, that's the problem with, with the, the system that we have. But World Heritage Listing, again, I mean, it, it, all of these things help. They, they help raise awareness. They help build a layer of protection. But it, it, it's quite a different thing to actually valuing nature as, a, as, a, as an entity in and of itself, as something that's living, flourishing, existing. Um, it, the, the, I guess the premise behind the sort of rights of nature is that instead of having humans at the apex of the, of the pyramid of, of, of all living things, humans are decentered in that they then you know, are seen to form one part of a circle uh, of life rather than us being the kind of lords over, over everything around us. And Wendy, what would be the process if we if we wanted to give those sacred trees a legal standing? What would need to happen? In other countries, um, I mean, my personal opinion is we're, we're so far away from that in Australia because of the particular uh, settler colonial system that we have and the current contemporary national politics, and even one might argue at the state level, uh, where freeways are prioritised over over. Uh, sacred songlines, but um, but but in other countries, it's been a, a, a grassroots um, uh, agenda that has been uh, instigated by traditional owners, um, uh, by traditional owners. So, uh, traditional owners caring for country in their area have have pushed for this legislation, and in certain cases, they have been successful in gaining that. So, for example, in New Zealand, um, you know, in this particular river. You, they can't do any development on that river without really extensive consultation with that community that is caring for country. So uh, it's quite a different way of having to kind of respond to a development that's being pushed through by an outside entity. It, 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 it completely uh, Yes. Well, I look forward to hearing more because I do think it's such an important issue and it it's coming up in kind of different ways. Uh, yes. Even at the Broadside Conference over the weekend, 
there was yes. a talk about you know, indigenous knowledges and uh, and how almost you know they underlie um, you know all of the stuff that the patriarchal academic structure yes. has, yes. has offered. And, but underneath all of that is a whole different way of conceiving the world of of doing that. I'm thinking of Aileen uh, Morton Robinson's talk. I mean, she was just amazing. So uh, I think this is the theme I'm hoping we'll hear more of. I think it's so important. And will there be um, any press releases coming out of the conference or any opportunity to speak after that conference? Oh, yes, there, there will be. There will be a lot coming out of the conference. It's, it's got a fantastic lineup of really, you know, really engaging. I think the thing about ecological economics is that it's, it's, it's really at the radical edge, but also, um, you know, is pointing to the heartlands of, you know, of, of our day-to-day kind of existence. So there's just so much, so much to, uh, to engage with there. Well, Wendy Steele, thank you so much for coming on 3CR Monday Breakfast this morning. It's been great having you and really enjoyed your paper and also your our conversation this morning. Thanks so much, Judith. Have a lovely day. And you too. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. And uh, now, uh, well, obviously that was Wendy Steele, an Associate Professor in Sustainability and Urban Planning at RMIT University in Melbourne. And now we're going to hear from Dreaming Now with Indigenous Land. Perpetual sack of the wrongs, this thing glorious, we will time off. But yeah, all of our kingdoms, you 
Former there and uh, such a great song. We've played that a few times over the last few weeks. I'm just feeling very, uh, and I saw him actually recently at a talk, so I guess it's really in my mind, but it is a great song. And you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It is Monday. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria wants to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. And you are on 3CR, and uh, for people watching the clock, it's about 8.18. So that's pretty specific. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's great to have your company this morning on Monday Brecky. And we've really heard a lot of stories about the environment this morning, and and there's another one coming up. Um, So so we have heard that... um, there will be a cease in the logging in um, old growth forests here in Victoria. That's one story we've heard. And now we hear that uh, Queensland has announced, announced last week, that it plans to tackle pollution with a single-use plastics ban. Now, this has been welcomed particularly by the Australian Marine Conservation Society, of course, because we've all seen the stories about uh, plastics in sea animals, sea creatures. So I spoke to Shane Krakow, the society spokesperson on plastics, last Friday to find out more. And I just began by asking him what a single-use plastics ban actually means. So the idea of a single-use plastics ban is to phase out certain single-use plastics that are particularly dangerous in our environment. Uh, So in this case, what the Queensland government is looking at is uh, introducing legislation that would enable them to ban the supply of things like plastic straws, cutlery, plates and stirrers, with the potential to open that up to other uh, plastic items such as plastic cups, heavyweight shopping bags, coffee cups, that sort of thing down the line after analysis. 
So quite a few products are included in this ban then. At the moment, there's a, a small number of regularly found products that are included in the Queensland government's ban with the potential to open it up to others. When are they proposing to bring this in? So unfortunately, we don't have a firm date. What the Queensland government has committed to do is to introduce legislation next year which would enable them to implement a ban. So we are expecting to see action on this next year, uh, but they haven't given us a firm deadline. At the moment, then, your congratulations is really about the proposed plan. Absolutely. So what the Queensland Government has also committed to do is to consult with community groups on what that ban looks like, which is particularly important for some uh, communities, such as people living with disabilities who can be affected when things like plastic straws, uh, which they often need, are banned without due consideration for how we can replace them with things that are as useful or uh, allow exemptions in a way that still have a massive impact on reducing the plastic in our ocean. In the shops, sometimes you will see uh, all the steel or paper straws, like a, a range of other products. But I guess what would you be looking for there? Have you got some idea? Uh, in terms of an alternative to plastic straws? Yeah. For the majority of people, we don't need plastic straws. There are plenty of alternatives out there and a range of new options that are being developed. So things like silicon straws, reusable metal straws, paper straws. Um, for people with disability, that's a bit more difficult because you need something that's pliable. So what we would encourage is government invest in and support the development of technologies that allow for alternatives that are reusable but just as flexible and uh, useful. So technology becomes pretty important in this process. Yeah, we do need alternatives. Yeah, and as well as consultation with people to just see how they're going to be affected. Yeah. yeah, it's very difficult to just rip something out of our supply chain, but unfortunately we don't have uh, other options. What would be the benefits when this uh, ban is brought in? It will be felt in our oceans. We all want clean and healthy oceans that are full of life. We all know that our beaches and our waterways are filling up with things like plastic takeaway containers, straws, bottle caps, and it's our marine life that are suffering. We see birds are feeding plastic to their babies. Half of all seabirds and turtles have plastic in their stomachs, according to stats from CSIRO. Nobody wants to see more whales washing up dead on our beaches with stomachs full of plastic. So by implementing a ban on single-use plastics, what we're doing is getting it out of the supply chain so that it can stop flowing into our oceans and stop killing animals. What difference can it make close to home in the immediate shores around Queensland? Three quarters of the rubbish along our coast is plastic and most of it originates at home in Australia. The wow. landfill that, that comes from that city that's nearby. So we need to do this across Australia. It can't just be up to one state or territory. It's great to see Queensland and South Australia leading the, the way by looking at bans on single-use plastics, but we really need it across Australia to conquer the, the problem of plastic pollution. We hear a lot about plastics um, coming out of Southeast Asia as well, and which is <clears throat> much more highly populated. What difference can Australia make? A huge difference, yeah. Plastic is all of our responsibility. It's not just uh, nations overseas that are um, polluting with plastic, but it's us here at home. Uh, you know, Australians, by and large, we're doing the right thing, but our recycling systems have buckled under the load of plastic that companies are pumping out. And we used to ship it to other nations to deal with, and now they've stopped taking it. And yes. so we have to deal with it here at home. Um, so with plastic piling up in warehouses and washing into our waterways, that's our plastic that's flowing out there. It's our responsibility to do something about it. And the only real solution is to get them out of our supply chain once and for all. On an individual level, many people are avoiding plastic. I notice when I go to the shops now, more and more people are taking their own bags, fabric of some sort. So people are yeah. doing that, but obviously more steps need to be taken from the government. Absolutely. You know, 
know, and people people are quite happy to make the right choice, but sometimes you don't get a choice, do you? You know, you go out to a cafe and someone puts a straw in your drink before you even get to say anything, or food is served in takeaway plastic containers. We are, by and large, very happy to move to other alternatives, and we're seeing a revolution of people who are moving to bringing their own reusable packaging bags, bottles. But at the end of the day, unless we actually stop supplying it in the first place, there's always going to be some of it that continues to flow out into our waterways. I noticed that the Australian Marine Conservation Society is part of the Boomerang Alliance. Tell me That's a little right. bit about the Boomerang Alliance. Yep, so the Boomerang Alliance is uh, an alliance of organisations across Australia who are all working together to try and conquer the problem of plastic pollution. So lots of people are doing lots of different things. So obviously this is a problem where we have to do something at the individual level. Um, we need businesses doing the right thing and we need government coming to the table as well. That means that there's a range of action that need to happen from the local, picking up plastic on beaches and participating in cleanups, that kind of thing, through to education, through to business change, you know, throughout. So we work particularly at the advocacy level working with government around how they can change the way that we do things in Australia to, to conquer the problem of plastic pollution. And others work in other areas, so Clean Up Australia, for example, or the Boomerang Alliance with their Plastic Free Places program, working with city councils to get rid of plastics. In many ways, this crisis is, has been well underway for a long time. And the sad truth is UNESCO stats are showing that over 1 million seabirds, 1 million seabirds and marine animals are killed by plastic every year. That means there's over 3,000 animals being choked, suffocated or entangled every day right now. So we can't afford to wait any longer. We have the solutions. We've just got to get on with it. And he's so right. We can't afford to wait any longer. And I, I thanked Shane for because he took my call and did that interview at very short notice. And, and that's Shane Cacao from the... Um, Marine, sorry, I've got Marine, Australian Marine Conservation Society. And I texted him afterwards and said, thanks so much for doing that. And he wrote back, well, I hope it lights a fire in your audience. Oh, <laughs> so I thought that's a great way to, to actually end that interview. And thanks, Shane. And uh, certainly we've heard lots of um, things around that we can do around the environment. But uh, also worth mentioning that in Victoria, they also banned single-use plastic bags beginning of November. I'm curious, how do you, I mean, have, has that affected you? Have you noticed it? Or have you even been not using them before? How, how do you deal with that when you go shopping? I'm a green bag user. Mum drummed that into me. Um, uh, great. And so Cheers to your mum. Yeah. Shout out to, <laughs> to Fatty's mum, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got to keep one on you at all times, really, because um, you never know when you're going to be at the shops, and then you have to get a bloody one of those reusable plastic bags but I think they're still pretty bad yeah I think they're, we're not you know too pleased with those either and, and Ellie you're from Queensland or until recently from Queensland How, what was it like there yeah so I think we've had the ban a bit longer so I've had a bit more practice and remembering to bring my bags but it does take time um, and the only way I can do it is if I have a bag in my car and in my backpack at all times yeah um, definitely. <laughs> yeah I agree I, that's the only way that I find to or I end up just buying an, another one of those you know non-plastic <laughs> ones yes it gets expensive yeah. The cupboards get full of them. Yeah, I know. They and do. not much better in the long run. So. Yeah, but the other, the trick that gets you, though, is when you want to buy some veggies, and then they've got those little plastic mm. bags. But I found when I was driving over from Adelaide, one, one of those trips, a uh, place, I think it was in Beaumont, and there was a place, kind of ecological and, and produce store, and they were selling these little um, green fabric, a very light green fabric. You could get five of them in one container, which I now also have to put inside my other 
coffee. Ah, you're ahead of me then. Uh, yeah, so th- that's a hint. Or, you you know, I'm just thinking way back to we, when we had um, a show on sustainable fashion that Alice uh, organized the interview for. And it said, instead of throwing out old clothes, make bags. That's a cool yeah, idea. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, anyway, good good to hear that these things are, are happening. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one thing at 3CR Community Radio, please subscribe now. تستمعون معنا إلى إذاعة 3CR Community Radio الرجاء الاشتراك الآن. நீங்கள் உங்களின் சமூக வானொலி 3CR ஐ கேட்டுக்கொண்டிருக்கிறீர்கள். Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. And a big thanks to all of you out there listening in this morning. It's been great to have you with us. And I hope you've, yeah, some fire has been sparked by some of those (laughs) interviews that we heard. Very passionate people, really. So going back to the beginning of the show, Peter Wern, about the recent media reports on the medically supervised injecting room. Matt Ruckel uh, on um, the Andrews government's announcement that logging of old-growth native forests in Victoria will cease. Chris Breen, the Refugee Action Collective, and voices from that rally on Saturday. Wendy Steele from RMIT RMIT about ecological economics and the rights of sacred trees. And Shane Cacao from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Big thank you to all our guests. And, oh, big thank you to Patty on the panel this morning. Yeah, and thanks, Ella. Patty. Yay. Thank you. Thanks, Ella. <laughs> it's our show. Yeah, great to have you. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.